Seattle City Council member Shama Sawant is with me today, uh, who I think, honestly, uh, maybe doesn't get enough coverage because she's out there in Seattle rather than nationally, but um, has actually demonstrated uh, the best uh, actual success for a leading elected progressive and uh, you know, proud socialist in the country. Uh, council member, thanks for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me, Jordan. So I want to just first uh, get right into what's going on in Seattle. We'll get into national in a few minutes, in a few minutes, but I don't know if a lot of people realize that there's been uh, efforts to recall you um, several times, actually, but <laughs> uh, Amazon at first tried to essentially defeat you at the ballot box, which they were unsuccessful. They poured in over a million dollars uh, to your campaign, uh, against your campaign there, uh, the last go around, you still won. Uh, and, and since then, there's been efforts to uh, remove you from office, uh, undemocratically, in my opinion. So I wanted to update the audience, because obviously, even though it's in Seattle, it, it shows uh, the powers that be and, and all the efforts uh, and, and dirty tricks they will take uh, to try and remove people that actually politically fight. Yes, as you correctly said, Jordan, uh, the recall attempt, which I'll talk about in a second more about it, uh, has everything to do with the fact that uh, our office, our socialist council office, and the movements that we have helped spearhead are directly in the face of the interests of um, the big business, ruling class, billionaires. And they not only... Uh, do not like the fact that we have the courage to fight and get organized and fight back. What they hate the most is that we have a strong track record of having won victories that were thought of as impossible. As you know, we won our first election in 2013, and then less than six months after I took office, we were able to win the $15 minimum wage. We made Seattle the first major city to win it. And the 15 now movement that we launched here then went nationwide. And now, of course, it's a nationwide question for a federal $15 minimum wage. And at that time, we had an absolute onslaught from big business and the politicians that represent them. And these are all Democratic Party politicians in the city here. And yet we were able to win because we refused to have our council office be one of those go along, get along kind of office. And I think it is a real demonstration of why the left, the progressive movement, the labor movement and working people needed we don't need just numbers of progressives being elected uh, all those numbers are going to come to naught unless we have people who are willing to build movements and fight for our rights which is what we have done last year we won the amazon tax to fund affordable housing and green new deal jobs and we have won a slew of renters rights that have flown in the face of corporate landlords who are absolutely angry about all of this so all of this they as you said they have tried various means, uh, including trying to defeat our re-elections, and yet we have won three elections so far. They have uh, launched lawsuit after lawsuit, ethics complaint after ethics complaint against us. I mean, I have lost count. They even launched some ethics, ethics complaints because we use the city hall printer and copier to uh, produce leaflets and posters for our movement, which we do proudly. We don't apologize for that. But the point is that they have tried everything in their power, and now they have this recall effort with four charges, all of them false charges. And it's really part of the, the nationwide targeting of the Black Lives Matter movement itself, because two of those four charges are directly relating to my solidarity with the Black Lives Matter movement. 
And I think that a lot of people, because I already, you know, I've already seen the tweets and things like that when I uh, point out your success, um, where people, naysayers, have said, well, yeah, let her come to Congress, see how effective she could be, because uh, that's Seattle. That's not the real world in terms of what Congresswoman uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Rashida Tlaib, Ilhan Omar, Ro Khanna, you know, the, the progressives in the House, Bernie, uh, there seems to be, at least from people that give them the benefit of the doubt, and to be clear, you know, my point is to be constructive, not just to indiscriminately criticize, but it seems to me there seems to be this separation that uh, people who defend the current progressive strategy nationally that says, well, what uh, Council Member Sawant and uh, your um, political allies uh, there in Seattle have been able to do uh, wouldn't be as simple or wouldn't be as easy or wouldn't be doable on the national level. Uh, and you and I were talking that that kind of thinking that there's somehow a difference between local fight, uh, the local political fighting and, and what you have to do nationally it, it is it, it's not wise to think that way. Can you kind of explain what your what your thoughts are on that? Yes, and starting with the point that you made, Jordan, which is very important to clarify that these are not personalized uh, questions. You know, I, I actually don't j j doubt how genuine uh, the squad members are and how Bernie Sanders, uh, how genuine he has been. I mean, uh, my organization, Socialist Alternative, and I have supported Bernie Sanders' bo both presidential campaigns. Uh, and it's really a, a question of what strategy can win. And I think it's very tempting for a lot of people to think that, well, you know, we should not demand that the squad and Bernie Sanders use a fighting approach in Congress because uh, that it doesn't work there. It can work. Uh, we, we are able to win $15 an hour much more easily in Seattle. But look, first of all, let me just say we have a recall campaign against our office. So any idea that somehow big business and their spokespeople will let you fly under the radar and win historic victories locally and not bother you. No, that is just blown out of the water by the fact that they, we have our office has constantly been un, under attack. In other words, the point being that for big business, for the capitalist class, for the ruling elite, any example of working people getting organized, winning their own voice in the halls of power and using that voice courageously to build organized resistance and win victories. Any example of this is dangerous for the ruling class because they know, as should we, that every example of success is contagious. So it was not for nothing that $15 an hour succeeded in so many cities once we won in Seattle because it's their example of winning victories that's contagious. And so uh, we should reject the false dichotomy between local versus national, like, oh, well, this worked locally, but not nationally. I know some people also have asked, well, in Seattle, I'm sure all the council members supported $15 an hour. In Congress, you have Joe Manchin and the Republicans. No, let me tell you this. On $15 an hour and on virtually every victory that we have won, the overwhelming number of those, including 15, started with one reliable vote on the council, mine. And then we were able to win either unanimous or supermajority victories on those demands. Why? Because we forced the democratic establishment and forced the cautious and timid progressive Democrats to concede because we were willing to use our office in a different way, in a way that the squad and Bernie Sanders haven't been willing to use. So again, it's a question of what strategy can win and what doesn't win. And one of the points that a lot of the lot of us on the left were saying 
was that when there is a must pass stimulus bill, that's leverage that the squad could have used to force $15 an hour inside the stimulus package. And our point was very much a strategic question, which is if Joe Manchin is willing to go to the mat for the class he represents, which is big business and Wall Street, then our side, you know, the left, those who represent working people also have to use a fighting approach. And in Seattle also, the only reason we won it was because we used the fighting approach, not because we had the support of the Democratic Party. In fact, most of the Democrats fought against the progressive victories that we have won. In fact, just two days ago, progressive Democrats shot down a very basic demand for renters that I had brought forward, which is to have a, a publicly funded legal aid for those fighting, ev fighting evictions. So, you know, all of these examples, concrete examples show that when we win, we win with a fighting strategy and a socialist strategy. And I'll just say, when we fought for 15, what we overcame was not only the opposition of big business and their overt supporting Democrats and overtly corporate politicians, what we overcame was also the the timidity of some of the labor leaders and the progressive Democrats who were not willing to challenge big business head on. And there's this idea, I think uh, some of the squad members might have that we could win victories without taking on big business interests head on. But such a thing is not possible. We only won 15 because we built the 15 Now movement, which held rallies, marches, action conferences. And ultimately, we had a winning tactic, which was a credible threat in the form of a ballot initiative where we said, if the city council Democrats don't pass 15, we will take it directly to the voters. And big business openly admitted that had it not been for that tactic, had it not been for that street movement 15 now, they would not have conceded. And, you know, something that I find kind of, I, I, I don't know, just, I guess, dumbfounding is, you know, when, when Manchin was willing to essentially just shut it down. I think he delayed uh, the final passage of the 1.9 trillion stimulus by at least a day or two. Um, and frankly, uh, I think the perception that that was, you know, that Biden and the Democrats were trying to put forth that this was somehow like the new New Deal. <laughs> we saw corporate media people framing this as rewriting the social safety net, which, you know, to me, uh, again, we live in this better than nothing uh, dynamic, but uh, it, it, it is not uh, it is not what is needed considering uh, the proportion of the crisis. But what I found kind of dumbfounding is I think political uh, the importance of politics and movements is understanding when, when you have a moment because they, they don't come so often. I think you understand the, the, the need to capitalize off a moment. And in this moment, which is not just a public health crisis, but a uh, economic crisis, uh, a spiritual crisis. So many people struggling emotionally uh, with so many people that just feel kind of uh, up the river without a paddle. You had a moment to actually do more than move the Overton window, but to actually put the pressure on the corporatists that have been de depriving uh, you of this relief. And it seems to me that Again, I'm just pointing at the squad because because we they are the people that would be fighting on our behalf in Congress. It, it seems to me like they're almost afraid because they think that the public overall would not be in support if they fought. Uh, but to me, I think the polls and just common sense indicates if they would have met Joe Manchin with, well, we're going to shut it down if it's not in there. I think the public would have overwhelmingly supported that. 
oh, I mean, look at the polls on $15 an hour on Medicare for all, in, and also the idea of uh, creating a massive jobs program. These are hugely popular. I mean, let's be clear. The stimulus package that has been passed by uh, the U.S. Congress and the Biden administration, it is important. It is going to make a real difference in people's lives in, in this urgent moment. But we should also be clear that is not some sort of beneficence on the part of the uh, the democratic establishment. Ultimately, what their what this stimulus package indicates is their own need to save their own system, which is an complete crisis right now. It is not only the pandemic. There is a long term crisis in the capitalist system. And you can see this happening worldwide. It's not just the Biden administration. In country after country under capitalism, you know, we, you we're seeing governments pass the kind of stimulus uh, that you haven't seen in the neoliberal era. So there's definitely a real shift there. But the whole debacle on $15 an hour also shows the, uh, you know, what the real problem is and where the disagreements are. And, and as you said, it's important to take advantage of that moment. I mean, let's note, let's make note of the fact that it wasn't Manchin who took out the $15 an hour from the Senate bill. It was Schumer and Biden. I mean, so in other words, it was the Democrats who had made promises on $15 an hour. Let's not forget, Biden made a promise on $15 an hour, and they themselves took it out of the Senate bill. It wasn't Manchin, and much less it wasn't the Republicans who had to do that. So in other words, uh, what they are doing themselves is bending to the interests of corporate, uh, the the you know the corporate wing of their party, and they are themselves the corporate wing because it's not like Biden couldn't bring the senators in line because he's some sort of shrinking violet. No, I mean a lot of people said, oh, the senators from Delaware themselves, you know, voted against uh, that. So why couldn't you bring them in line? That Biden somehow doesn't have guts. No, Biden has guts. He is fighting for his side, which is Wall Street interests and. Unfortunately, the passage of the stimulus also indicates their own desire to save their own system. So, you know, so we have to be very clear which side they are on. And uh, that's why it was important that there was this uh, debate uh, before, before the stimulus and the $15 vote. Uh, there was the debate uh, that was called, that came to be known as force the vote, where a section of the left was saying, let's make sure that we use this opportunity rather than voting for Nancy Pelosi and giving her, you know, just a, like a blank check, a rubber stamping of her position as speaker, that the squad should use that moment to force a vote on Medicare for all. And at that time, uh, AOC and other squad members said, well, that's not that's not good, good strategy. Let's focus on a winning strategy, something like $15 an hour. But then we came to $15 an hour and they, they, they dis, did the same thing. So I think it's important to point out that the disagreements are not about this or that tactic. I mean, those disagreements are valid. And in any serious left movements, we will have to have serious discussions and, and honest debates. And sometimes we will disagree. But I think that what's really underlying what happened with the force the vote and what happened with $15 an hour and the stimulus bill is a refusal to have a head-on conflict with the democratic establishment, with their own party. Uh, and one, it shows how that strategy doesn't work and why Seattle won is because we had a socialist strategy, a fighting strategy. And secondly, it also shows how it is um, like beating your head against a brick wall to be part of a party that represents interests that are diametrically opposed to the interests of working people. You know, the Democratic establishment, Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, all of them represent Wall Street interests. They have some differences with 
the previous Trump regime. And it's really, really important that uh, the majority of Americans sent a repudiation message to Trump by defeating him in the election. But at the end of the day, one thing that the Democratic establishment and the Republican Party both have in common is that they both serve Wall Street interests. And so it's not working for us, for working people, to continue to put our forces inside the Democratic Party. This also brings up the question of a new party. But regardless of which, which whether you're in the Democratic Party or you're independent like me, you're not going to win victories without a fighting strategy. So in other words, what we were saying was, not only should you use your to the squad numerical balance of power to withhold the vote on this must pass stimulus bill and insist that $15 an hour is made part of it you know fight to the mat like joe manchin does and uh, but not not stop at that it is not just about antics on the congressional floor this is about a serious strategy for the left so what we were arguing for is for that strategy to be used alongside uh, the squad making a call for hundreds of thousands of people, if not millions of people, to come out and march on the streets in West Virginia, in Arizona, in Georgia. And these are key states because West Virginia and Arizona are states where Joe Manchin and Kristen Cinema are senators from. But Georgia is important because the black working class vote was mobilized by Biden saying, you know, just vote for us, we've got your back. Well, the Democratic Party establishment has not got your back if you are a black worker or if you are, 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 are you know, a, one, one of the tens of millions of Americans who is suffering during a pandemic at the same time that the billionaire class in America has gotten over a trillion dollars richer. So this really does bring up serious questions of strategy and we have to grapple with them. And as a reminder, folks, we've got almost 400 lives. So smash the like button. It's right under the video. The more people that press like, the more people that will see this. I wanted to ask you also, because to me, I, I think you said something uh, in a different interview that really spoke to me. You know, I think a lot of the naysayers, whether it be to force the vote, uh, whether it be to, uh, you know, trying to block the, the stimulus bill uh, in, in demanding that the minimum wage be put in there. I think a lot of people wrongly have said you shouldn't bother doing it if it's not going to work right away. A and among some who, you know, claim to be progressive, the measuring stick has been um, victory or tangible results now. Let's not try anything if it's not certain to be victorious. But uh, my reading of history, and I know you know uh, movement history very well, is that's not how movements work. And that's not how any successful movement has worked. Uh, in fact, for long-term success, you need to have defeats. Uh, as kind of those building blocks. I mean, none of us have 100 years to keep on losing, but you need to have some defeats just to kind of get the public consciousness raised on these issues. And, you know, for example, with this minimum wage battle, um, you know, it's unlikely if these seven or eight House members uh, coalesce together as, as a block uh, to stop it. They probably would have folded at some point because I think it's very clear through President Biden signaling before the, quote, parliamentarians decision, which was a lot of BS, um, that, you know, they were not going to move heaven and earth for $15 minimum wage. However, uh, if they would have fought, maybe you don't win it right this minute, but it helps a galvanize uh, the movement, a galvanize uh, organizers, galvanize just normal Americans behind you. It helps 
raise the public consciousness to exactly what you said. Well, wait a minute here. This is the only campaign promise you made a $15 minimum wage. You're the president. You got all houses. So actually, there, there's some pressure put on these politicians, and it sets up the infrastructure, in my opinion, to win the next on the next try or, or the next try. So what do you have to say to these people that they, they seem to say you shouldn't bother if it's not guaranteed to win right now on, on this try? I think the first thing to note is that we are guaranteed to lose and lose and lose if we don't have a fighting strategy. This is what we have seen. And as you said correctly, the one promise Biden made was $15 an hour, and he betrayed uh, working people on that promise. So if victory is the yardstick, then look at Seattle's example. Look at the example of a socialist fighting office where we have won victory after victory. And as I said before, victories that were thought of as impossible, but we made them happen precisely because we were willing to uh, um, look at this as, uh, uh, and what this is what we should be looking at nationally as well, which is that this is a system of capitalism where the forces of the wealthy are uh, are not in alignment with the with uh, the interests of working people and trying to get them in alignment with the interests of working people is like trying to square a circle it is never going to happen it is an impossibility in other words what we are guaranteed to do is to not win victories for working people if we continue on this path of not trying to have conflict with the establishment and and i think that even when genuine people i mean this is not a question of intention it's a question of uh, you know looking past what people what fears people may have unconsciously when people say that we should not do it unless we are guaranteed to win what they're really worried about is not whether so much whether they will win that first time or not the, what they're worried about is that there are powerful enemies that are going to be absolutely furious with you if you have the temerity to fight and my response to that is yes absolutely yes what did frederick douglas say power concedes nothing without a demand it never has and it never will and and you know to me something that gets lost in all this is you know I, and again i actually i like all of them uh, so it's not a personality thing but i think something as simple as calling them out by name it, it seems to be they're not willing to do that even bernie sanders who talks about revolution does not seem willing to call them out by name. And I'm not asking them to call them out by name so that like I could get clicks off of it on YouTube and rant. But I think it's important, you know, if you have, uh, you know, for example, Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez is not lacking for attention from the media. She could pretty much go on any show she wants whenever she wants. But I see this hesitation to even mildly critique uh, President Biden or um, I saw Il uh, Congresswoman Omar on uh, where she seemed to uh, be a little hesitant to criticize Biden. And I don't know if it's simply because, again, you know, we're all human and obviously they get a lot of uh, threats and attacks on, on Congress. Or if it's they have this misguided notion, because it seems to me, Congresswoman J uh, Jayapal in your backyard uh, in Washington state, they seem to think that the way to go is actually try to expand your coalition, get some of these establishment politicians, uh, Congressman, Congresswoman Jayapal, for example, just relaunched the Medicare for All bill today, and they're making a big thing that now they have some of these establishment 
Democrats who previously were against it now as co-sponsors. But I think, as you said, you could resubmit the bill till you're blue in the face. You can get more people to verbally uh, or, you know, performatively say they're for it. But if the president of the United States has said, I don't care if it passes, if it comes to my desk, I'm going to veto it. Well, there's your answer. And it doesn't matter how what you do legislative maneuvering wise, what you do getting more of these tr traditionally establishment people uh, on your corner. If the ruling class, because I think Biden is just doing the bidding of the ruling class, as was Trump, if they're not going to do it, then then you need kind of more of an outside guerrilla strategy. So I, you can't get in their heads. But do you feel that they're wasting time trying to resubmit the bill and get more establishment people on? Because it seems to me that's their strategy, try and win the hearts and minds of some of these establishment folks to hop on board with the legislation. Well, I mean, you know, I think we absolutely need coalition building. In fact, we would not have won any of our victories if Socialist Alternative was by itself. We won victories precisely because we built coalitions that were successful in winning victories. Uh, but it's a question of uh, what kind of coalitions and coalition with whom. We did not try to form coalitions with the corporate politicians in City Hall. No, we, we were absolutely clear whose side we were on. We formed coalitions with progressive labor unions, with ordinary people on the streets who were willing to fight back but had no influence, no organization to speak for them. Many of them were in, uh, you know, union rank and file, but many of them also were non-unionized workers. And the way we did it was by empowering them and building a coalition in the grassroots. So, uh, you know, when we held the 15 Now Action Conferences, we got hundreds of people, ordinary people, who have no power otherwise except for being in uh, in organized solidarity with others like themselves. And we spoke with a combined voice. That's a coalition. But that's not the kind of coalition that you were talking about. You know, the coalition that some of these Congress members are trying to build are with people we know are not on our side. I mean, what kind of coalition are you going to build with someone like Nancy Pelosi when she's, it's very clear, she has spent four decades in Congress opposing the interests of working people. So it is foolhardy to say that somehow you're going to build a coalition with uh, people who have spent decades in their career opposing very, very um, things that are very, very important to ordinary people. And this is not the first go around on Medicare for all. So you know, in, I'll tell you, I'll give you an example in a second. But when when progressives, you know, let's not question their intentions. As I said, we don't need to do that. We don't need to be mind readers. Let's look at the outcomes. When you as a progressive try to build a coalition with corporate politicians, what will happen is that they are not going to bend to you. They will force you to bend to them. In other words, what, we, what will happen is that we won't get Medicare for all by that strategy because it is precisely by that strategy we haven't won Medicare for all so far. U.S. is the richest country in the history of humanity, and we have the worst healthcare among the industrialized countries. Why? Because this strategy has been used for decades and it hasn't worked. So, if you want to be data driven and if you want to be, uh, you, if you want to base yourself on victories, then realize that this is not a victory strategy. It is a losing strategy. But it, you know, what's behind all this is also important, and I don't think. We should underestimate how difficult it is. I mean, I can tell you, having been in office as an independent socialist, having fought the establishment for seven and a half years now with 
everything thrown at me, all kinds of attacks thrown at me. It's not easy. It is very, very hard. There's a lot of pressure on you either to bend and become part of the, the you know, big business establishment and you know, become innocuous, become completely harmless, have no uh, effectiveness at all, uh, or uh, you know, stay on your principles but become marginalized and have no power either despite your principles. So what we have done is dodge both those pitfalls and uh, succeed while remaining principled precisely because we have been crystal clear uh, I, as an elected representative of working people, do not go to City Hall thinking, these are my work colleagues. I need their respect and friendship and approval. That is, therein lies the problem. And it is very hard to go into a work, workplace every day where the people who are supposedly on your side and working with you are your arch enemies. And that's just the way it is. It is because you have to remember, it's not a normal workplace. This is capitalism. And some politicians are going to overtly represent the interests of the capitalist class. Some politicians will not overtly represent the interests of the capitalist class, but will be unwilling to challenge the bosses, ch challenge the status quo. And there you are. You have to decide, what are you going to do? Are you going to be part of this ineffective middle, you know, whatever progressive where they do nothing, but they say nice things? Uh, are you going to be overtly pro-corporate? What are you going to do? So what we did, we, we rejected both those avenues. And instead, we built our power from the grassroots by empowering other people, by understanding that this is not about you. This is not about me as an elected leader. It is about bringing tens of thousands of people's voices into City Hall, bringing that army into City Hall that can go up against the power of big business. And ultimately, we cannot, you know, we cannot have delusions of grandeur. We can, you know, Capitalism is, is, a, is a deeply hostile system to working people, and winning reforms will not be enough. But even to win these reforms, there's a kind of change in balance of power that you have to bring about if you are to uh, win something. So it's a coalition, yes, but coalition with whom? Not with people who oppose the very thing you stand for. So if you're trying to win Medicare for all, don't go and build coalition with people who oppose Medicare for all. Go to the tens of millions of Americans who do want Medicare for all, yes. who will come out and fight for it, organize rallies, mass action conferences, bring out the voice of the people. But, but herein lies the problem, Jordan. When you as an elected representative, you start doing that, you start empowering people and organizing rallies, what happens? The, the other elected officials start hating you. And then they start saying things like, oh, she's odious. She's vicious. She doesn't know how to talk to people. She doesn't know how to build relationships. Well, guess what? Every time ordinary people have had their leaders fight for them, those leaders have come under attack. What do you think they said about MLK? What do you think they said about Malcolm X? There is, my point is that there is no other way in which to accomplish this. Yes, you have to understand that they, those politicians who are against the interests of working people are also against you. They are not your friends. Your friends are working people. Go to them for respect and approval and support. So the way to not be isolated is to build that kind of support. And you know, we did this in Seattle. Imagine the scale at which we could do uh, this, if we if we had uh, elected representatives actually fighting for Medicare for all, you know, calling for mass conferences in state after state where people, unions, uh, community organizations all come and fight for it, especially in the middle of a pandemic, it is a hugely popular issue. And I also think I, I, I'd like to get your thoughts. 
you know, we all know in our life, there's been times we've had to argue for things that maybe we don't really have a good argument or we, for whatever reason, have to kind of exaggerate. Uh, but in this case, I mean, the, you, lit- you are on such solid ground that it's not just progressives that support the things you're talking about. It's people who voted for Joe Biden, people who voted for Hillary Clinton that are economically in shambles right now, even people, conser- conservatives that are devastated by, by coronavirus economically, uh, libertarians, you name it. And the thing that I find so startling is obviously we don't want to adopt, adopt former President Trump's policies or, or racism or any of that. But I think part of what drew people to him was that he was presenting himself as a fighter. It might have been a lot of bullshit, but he was at least presenting himself as a fighter. Bernie, what has attracted millions to him, yes, the policies, but the the presentation of being a fighter. I think that is why a lot of uh, these Republicans, they, they tend to hoodwink people on the economics, but people gravitate towards politicians that are fighting. Uh, you know, we're not talking about violence, but we're talking about at least standing for something. You might not always agree with every single thing, but at least fighting for them. I think why Trump, I mean, honestly, if not for a pandemic that he badly, badly mismanaged, um, probably would have won in a landslide because he did keep a lot of his promises to the voters. They were mostly terrible things, but the the politicians that uh, seem to be fighting uh, the establishment and actually fighting for to keep promises, there seems to be a large public draw to those politicians, even if a lot of them don't stand for what you or I stand for. So my whole point in all this is, again, might not win on, on each try, but maybe fighting a little beyond tweets uh, would actually galvanize the troops politically to reach your political goals. Yeah, I think ultimately uh, what what the whole Trump example shows, and I think uh, unfortunately uh, there is truth to what you're saying, Jordan, that if Trump had not completely mismanaged the response to the pandemic, then uh, it's not clear what would have happened. Uh, And in fact, uh, what the the whole the Trump phenomenon, and in fact, Trump may be defeated, but Trumpism hasn't gone away, and the threat of right populism still remains. And so, this is a serious question for the left. It's not just about doing a review of the past. And the whole Trump phenomenon, what does it show more than anything? What it shows is the complete absence, the vacuum, that uh, absence of the left, the vacuum on the left that Trump was able to exploit. He's a con man. He's a billionaire who, and a reactionary billionaire who was able to uh, act as a con man, take in these votes from people who for the most part, are just fed up with corporate politics. They hate the Republicans, they hate the Democrats with good reason because none of them has done anything for them. As you said, people's living standards have, uh, you know, really cratered, not all, I mean, obviously through the pandemic, but even before then. And I think we have to be very clear. We have to uh, build a united multiracial fight back against racism, We have to bring people of all genders together in a fight against sexual violence and against sexism. But the way to do that really is to bring about a larger unity among working people. I I watched this Biden clip and it's it's such an alternate reality. It's such an alternate reality. And the media, of course, 
does not push back at all. They're too busy slobbering over this man. It's honestly, at this point, it's shameful. We saw it during the campaign. They let him lie about everything. They let him lie about his civil rights record, that he was out there in South Africa, you know, meeting Mandela when Mandela was freed. Total bullshit. They let him lie, lie about being on the front lines of the civil rights movement. They let him lie about his Iraq war vote. They let him lie all the way to the White House. But Biden said this during uh, an interview with George Stephanopoulos, and I thought it was very, very interesting. So I'm going to play it for you. Let's take a look. I'm here for bringing back the talking filibuster. I am. That's what it was supposed to be. Look, I think, don't hold me to the numbers, George, but I think between 1960 and 2000, I'm making this number up, I don't know. There were like, uh, you know, 50 filibusters. Now they're like 200 since then. Since that Just put a hold on it, that's it. Yeah, I mean, you know, so the idea, it it almost is getting to the point where there's, you know, democracy's having a hard time functioning. A hard time functioning. And so, look, I'm not saying this is going to be easy, George, but I do. And so, look, I'm not saying this is going to be easy, George, but I do believe there's enough Republicans over time who are going to have. Look, you, you, they haven't had that epiphany you said you were going to see in the campaign. No, no. Well, I've only been here six weeks, pal. OK, give me a break. <laughs> been here six weeks. I think the epiphany is going to come in 20 between now and 2022. This is one. There's 78 percent of the people say they support this program. So what I love there, what I love there. Democracy is having a hard time functioning. Did you hear that? Democracy is having a hard time functioning. And George, you know, Stephanopoulos, of course, is too busy slobbering all over him. Well, yeah, democracy is having a very hard time functioning but not because of the filibuster. That's one of the reasons. But maybe because people like you, President Biden, are corrupt. Maybe because you say, give me a break. I've only been here six weeks. Well, maybe because in six weeks, you broke at least four or five of the only campaign promises you even made. $15 minimum wage. Uh, You promised $2,000 checks if those two senators won in Georgia. You also said a public option even though that's mysteriously lost, left your vocabulary. You hear Biden talking about a public option anymore? I don't. So this notion, democracy is having a hard time functioning. Yeah, democracy is having a very hard time functioning because when 70% of people want universal government health care and you say no, you are openly hostile to democracy. You are openly hostile to representative government because you're not representing the will of the people. If 70% of people want something and you're saying, no, I'm not going to do it. Well, is that democracy or is that you going against the democratic public sentiment? When an overwhelming majority, not just of Democrats, of Republicans support a $15 minimum wage. And you sit here with your bullshit gaslighting to say, oh, no, well, you know, the Senate parliamentarian, you know, we can't do anything because, you know, the the Senate parliamentarian, the Senate parliamentarian. You don't care about democracy. If you did care about democracy, you would be representing the people. You would be honoring the will of the people. 
This is not like gray area stuff where it's like, you know, 50% to 49%. Overwhelming majority support these things, but you are hostile to it. So don't give me a bunch of bullshit about, oh, democracy is having a hard time functioning. Maybe democracy is having a hard time functioning because you are hostile to democracy. So is Nancy Pelosi. So is Chuck Schumer. Clearly Mitch McConnell, uh, Ron Johnson, Trump, and all these lunatics are. None of these people believe in democracy. All of these people have been captured by their donors. That's their idea of democracy. Providing crumbs to the, to the starving masses. Well, you know, here and there, we'll give you some, you know, little crumbs of change. That's democracy to them. All of these people, and I, you know, I love Crystal, I love Sagar, I love all these people, uh, but I see a lot of, like, a lot of stuff about the filibuster and how getting rid of the filibuster will suddenly, you know, open the seas. Well, how is, I, I am for getting rid of the filibuster, to be clear, but how is just simply getting rid of the filibuster going to do anything if, even it, you don't have even the Democratic Party completely honoring that they will support these measures that democracy says they should. We live in a representative democracy, or we're supposed to. I've been telling you for years, we don't live in a democracy. So we live in a representative democracy, yet you had eight senators when Bernie put forward the amendment to put the $15 minimum wage to have that voted on just straight vote on it, yet eight Democratic senators vote against it. Is that democracy? Kristen Cinema, Joe Manchin, they're voting against the popular public sentiments in the own states, in the states that they represent. And, they, and, and Biden is trying to pretend that really the problem with democracy here is, you know, Mitch McConnell isn't forced to stand up for nine hours as he's filibustering and read from the phone book like the good old days. That's not the problem. The problem is, even if you got rid of the filibuster, the Democratic Party, and it's the same thing for the Republican Party when they're in rule, they go against democracy. They go against the very promises they told the voters. They go against what they said they would do. I don't have a lot of nice things to say about Trump, but one thing I'll give him, he honored most of his promises. He honored, I'm going to try to build that wall. I mean, he didn't, but he, you know, he built something. He said, I'm going to be as racist and xenophobic to immigrants as I can. And he certainly was. He said, I'm going to, you know, repeal NAFTA or whatever. I mean, it was basically a knockoff NAFTA light, but he did. He kept a lot of his promises. <laughs> Most of them weren't good. But the Democratic Party, the Democratic Party, and Biden, they want you to they want you to uh, they want to punk you. They want to gaslight you into thinking we even live in a democracy. We don't live in a democracy. A democracy is you elect people, you vote for people based on what they say you're going to they're going to do. Then they get elected and then they do it or at least try to do it. We don't live in a democracy. We live in a fake democracy where one party is just openly racist, Islamophobic, uh, and just her her horrendous, and the other one is economically corrupt and essentially just performance artists. They're performance populists, the Democrats. It's, it's all performative bullshit.
So, yeah, it, it's very frustrating seeing clips like that because, you know, I expected the media to slobber all over Biden. It, it's downright unseemly, if you ask me. I mean, he hasn't been challenged once. The, the very, very few interviews. I think this was one of the first interviews he did with George Stephanopoulos. I don't think Stephanopoulos challenged him once. Not once. Um, but we haven't lived in a democracy for a long time. And I think part of the problem is, and this goes back to what council member Shama Sawant and I were talking about, you don't have the elected progressives that themselves ran as fighters, themselves were calling out this kind of shadow democracy that all of these corporate Democrats are essentially selling you down the river. You don't actually have them fighting this bull. You don't have them calling it what it is. You don't have them saying, wait a minute, President Biden, you're here talking about democracy and the filibuster? Well, how about some democracy and honor your commitments to the people who elected you? 